Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. This is Tony Jones, a.k.a. the Reverend Hunter, joined, as always, through the tubes and wires by producer extraordinaire, Brandon. Brandon, I think I've used that one before. That's okay. I, I'm, I'm probably more comfortable <laughs> with that one at this point. It's a, it's a word that I'm actually familiar with using. So. <laughs> sorry, sorry to rehash the adjectives. I'm, I should have pulled out the thesaurus before it, we started today. It's, it's, it's more natural with extraordinaire. I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> you just, you run out. You after what? What are we at? We're getting close to a couple dozen episodes here of the Reverend Hunter podcast. So. I mean, how many? How many can we even come up with? <laughs> how 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 things been as of late? I've been good, really good. You know, it's bro, it's hunting season. I know it. It is. Uh, it's exciting. I'm. I had uh, my pheasant hunting buddies over to my backyard, and I grilled the last of. Uh, first of all, I'm. We've been like eating wild game for every meal because I'm trying to clean out the freezer. I'm not one of these guys who likes to dig back into the freezer and be like, oh, I found a venison shank from 2017. Let's see how that is. I'm like, I I try to eat uh, and serve and, and all the, you know, all this stuff I got from the previous season before the new season starts. So I did a... Uh, the old classic, which is uh, I took some jalapeno peppers from my garden, uh, cut those in half and seeded them out. And then you fill them with cream cheese and you put a strip of pheasant or any game bird on top of that. And then you wrap it in bacon and grill it. That's and, amazing. <laughs> dude, that it is a tasty. It is a tasty little morsel. Oh, wow. That sounds really good. Yeah. And then I found three bags of um, ducks. So I'm pretty hardcore about like I don't breast out ducks that are good roasters. So I had three bags of duck breast in the freezer. I thawed them out. Uh, I bought some pork fat and I ground it all up and made duck sausage. Hunter's, it's a recipe called Hunter's Sausage from... Hank Shaw's cookbook, Duck, Duck, Goose, and dude, 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 so good. Really? Oh, what my did, gosh. What did you use to make the sausages? Did you have any help with any equipment? Well, <laughs> funny you should ask, but thanks to Walton's and the guys at the Meat Gistics podcast, I have such a great grinder and sausage stuff for now. Uh, that it made it made the prep of this really so I mean really like I, I, in the past I I always dreaded I would have like one or two so I'd have probably two sausage making days of my whole year and I just dreaded it because it took forever I, and I'm not like exaggerating just because they sponsor the this podcast by sending us some gear it really was a total pain because at first I was one of these guys, I used my KitchenAid, like a KitchenAid attachment. I kept breaking it because it was those are all plastic implements that get. And then I bought something off of Craigslist and it was better, but it still, it just took forever. Um, but man, with this Walton's gear, making sausage is such a breeze. It's like, takes me an hour, you know, to, to basically grind it twice and then pipe it into sausage casings. So... It's a, it's a pleasure to do it, and people love it. And it's a great way to serve duck 
and goose to people who find that the taste of duck and goose a little strong. Sure. Um, when you just, you know, grill it or whatever. <clears throat> so that was awesome. Man, I could just go on and on just because it's hunting season. I mean, I last weekend I was up north. I was moving deer stands around uh, based on where I'm seeing deer in our trail cameras. Um, and um, I'll tell you what, buddy, this is good news for you. I saw a lot of squirrels on those trail cameras. Good. <laughs> I, I have so many squirrels in my yard here in Minneapolis that I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hankering to, to, to get a little vengeance on these squirrels. Well, <laughs> you, yeah, you're going to have a chance because you and I have finally got a date on the books. And it looks like if, if the stars align this coming Sunday, uh, you and I will go out squirrel hunting. So we're going to. I think I, I think you can buy an apprentice hunting license since you haven't been through gun safety yet. And uh, I can show you around how to use a 22 and we can go out and I, I bet you and I can whack a few squirrels and then clean them and you can bring them home to your girlfriend <laughs> and say, honey, squirrel for dinner. It's what she's always wanted, just for me to bring home some dead squirrels. So it turns out we're going to kill a couple birds with one stone. So this will be great. I, I actually got a text from a friend who is a faithful listener of the show. Shout out to Mike Stavland. And he texted me and said something like, I can't wait to hear brandon's like primitive scream when he kills his first squirrel <laughs> so i'll make sure to have you, some audio recording going just yeah so <laughs> i mean you even just on my phone or whatever we're gonna have to uh we're gonna have to document your first kill so that should be that should be fun um and i'm looking forward to it and then i guess we'll We'll break it down in future episode intros. It'll be some good podcast content. Speaking, Speaking of, of oh, oh, where did both go? <laughs> great minds think alike, bro. Speaking, were you about to say speaking of great podcast content? That's literally exactly what I was going to say. And then I was going to segue into our wonderful guest this week, Billy Vaughn. Yeah, man, Billy. Uh, I met Billy a few years ago. He took a class that I teach at Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary is based in California, but I teach a class every few years for them to doctoral students, and we go canoeing in the Boundary Waters. Um, and Billy and his wife, April, came on that trip, and uh, he took it for credit and is, is getting his doctorate in, uh, D, it's called a D-min degree, a doctorate of ministry at, at Fuller Seminary. But I was so intrigued by him, by both of them and their journey, and and particularly Billy, um, having been a Marine for over two decades, uh, then left the Marine Corps, went to seminary, spent some of his time at seminary living in a van on Skid Row, and then moved to Arkansas and started basically a, a working farm, like a kind of a hobby farm for... Uh, a lot of guys in recovery, guys getting out of jail. Um, it's just what a story, huh? I mean, you heard the interview. It, it's really fascinating stuff. The amount of stuff he's put into his, you know, fairly short life is it's absolutely mind blowing. He's experienced. 
I don't know, so much more, so many things you see in movies. He's actually experienced yeah. in real life from his military service to, like you said, being on Skid Row and, and being out there and not even just helping out the community there, but living in the community there too. So it's, 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 yeah, it's and a cool story. That's right. And there are a couple of really intriguing things I find about Billy is one, one is the way, I mean, being a pretty progressive guy, um, still the way he talks about guns and firearms is, I mean, for me, we talk about that. It, I, w- I don't think I would talk publicly about firearms the way he does because I'd be afraid of the judgment I would get from people. But he really talks about his love for guns, which is interesting. And then he told part of the story that I'd never heard before um, that I, I thought was fascinating was he, you'll hear on the po- on the interview part of the podcast here that he was on the roof in Fallujah on his third combat deployment when um, an airstrike blew up a building that they were targeting. And I, I mean, I don't want to spoil it, but he really had kind of what you'd call a conversion experience, which is such a, a so profound. And um, anyway, what a great guy. And he's also a hunter. And he's after a buck this fall called Big Nasty. <laughs> so we'll... If Billy, uh, if Billy is able to drop Big Nasty, we will get a picture, and you know we'll we'll let our listeners know on the podcast. You can support Billy and his wife at their website sanctuaryfarm.org. I'd really encourage you to check out what they what they do there, and you know if you got a few bucks at the end of the year, you want to uh, you know make a donation. I, I can tell you. I can't imagine you giving it to a better organization than Sanctuary Farm. They're just doing incredible work. And it's just the two of them, Billy and April, and they're just bootstrapping it the whole way. So um, he's a really a fantastic guy in this interview. Uh, I'm so proud that we could get him on the podcast. All right, here's my conversation with my dear friend, Billy Vaughn. Billy, welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. Thank you, Tony. It's good to be here. Man, it's been you. You and I haven't seen each other for what three years, probably, huh? Yeah, I think it was. I think that trip we took was uh, in the Boundary Waters. I think that was about three years ago. Yeah. Um. So I, I there's so many things I want to talk to you about, but uh, I'd love to talk to you first to hear about. Um, I want to know. I want to see if I remember this right. What I remember is when you got out of your military service, you went to seminary at Fuller Seminary, where I also went to seminary. You went many years later than me, but uh, but Talbot, you did actually. I, I oh, went you to, went, I to went to Talbot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. And then you got you're getting your <laughs> doctor. You're getting your doctor of ministry. Right. So you saw the error of your ways after Correct. your masters. And you're yes. getting your doctorate. Okay. Because that's where I, you know, just so listeners know, you you came on a boundary, you and your wife, April, came on a Boundary Waters trip that I led. And you actually took it as a course uh, for your doctor of ministry program at Fuller Seminary, where I, te- I teach in that doctor of ministry Correct. program. And that's where you and I came uh, came to cross paths for the first time. And your work, I will say, was outstanding, my friend. Outstanding. 
that. Very, yeah, very <laughs> impressed with your work. Okay, so you're at Talbot in Los Angeles. And you were, were you living on Skid Row? Were you ministering on Skid Row? Like, what, tell me about that. So uh, refresh my memory. Yeah, sure, sure. So I, I served as a chaplain at a rescue mission there on Skid Row. And, and I, I was there about five years. And, and during that time, I actually moved up to LA. And, I, and so I lived uh, in Little Tokyo, which is right next door. To Skid Row, and then my final probably three to six months, I actually uh, lived in a van on on the street. Uh, my my wife uh, kind of she she kind of was the advance party for coming out here to Arkansas uh, to the farm uh, while I lived in the van and kind of finished up things in L.A. Okay, dude, you. <laughs> Were you living in the van by choice or yeah. out of necessity? Oh, yeah, sure. yeah, I thought by choice, right? Sure. Yeah, I was living by choice. Um, mainly because I I wanted to experience, you know, what that was like. Not not the experience of living homeless. I mean, I, I was a Marine for 21 years, so I kind of I knew what it was like to live on the ground and, yeah. and all of that, live in the dirt. But more just when when people think you're experiencing homelessness on the street, like when you walk by them or they drive by or whatever, I, I they realize I realize they look at you differently. Yeah. And so um, and so I wanted to experience what what that was like, and it was yeah it was interesting, challenging. What? Tell me about it. Yeah. Tell. Sure. I mean, I'm sure it was challenging, but like what what were your <laughs> big impressions? about that yeah well the the hardest uh logistical obstacle was just bathrooms and like you know trying to figure out where to use a bathroom and when and all of that um so i had to come up with a routine at starbucks and they started locking their bathrooms and so i had to figure all that out but um but what what was probably most profound was just the 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 looks that I had never experienced before of you know what mm. in the morning when I'm walking on the street and I got I got a backpack and so people assume that I've spent the night on the street and so that uh, that look of oh you're you're one of those and uh, mm. yeah yeah that was that was interesting it was it was like um, you know. A, I'm sure we've all experienced this where we're, we're just busy. We, we have our schedule. We don't want to be bothered with, you know, someone. And, yeah. and, and so, uh, and so I would get that look of, you know, keep your distance from me type mm. of, type of look. Yeah. Tell me about the people who live on Skid Row or even, even about the, you know, is there one guy you remember that did kind of can, encapsulate for us the kind of person you worked with there? Sure. Um, there was a guy that I worked with that was diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic and he was self-aware enough to know, um, that the voices weren't real. Mm. Uh, but he, 
in some ways he enjoyed them or, or the way he described it is they kept him company. And so um. the, the medication, the medication that he would take, you know, he, they would make the voices go away, but because he was, you know, he was just kind of an unusual person. I think people oftentimes kept their distance from him. So, so because of that, he would skip the medication because the voices would come back and they would keep him company. So we would talk about this and, and I could ask him what the voices were telling him at the moment, you know, like when he was sitting talking to me, which, which usually was don't trust him. He wants you to take those meds that make us go away type of type of stuff. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so really, really fascinating, but also just recognizing uh, him living in this kind of alternate reality to some degree. Um, I think that is from my experience, what people miss is like, you know, how could you look at somebody living on the street? How could you, how could they live that way? Why would they yeah. choose that? Well, oftentimes they're not as aware or their perspective is different of that reality than ours might be from the outside. Did you, um, did you run into a lot of, veterans on skid row some not a lot from my experience the va is very good at addressing veteran homelessness so so there is a hotline you know if if the veteran wants to get uh help uh typically the veteran can get help with Mm -hmm. you know with that type of stuff uh but but a few uh or Oftentimes the veterans I ran into were veterans from way back from, you know, this, even the seventies and eighties. And so they were already plugged in to the, uh, the VA. Okay. But, but they were, but they were also either by choice living on the street or, or maybe they were living in the mission, you know? Yeah. Um, I want to I want to backtrack a little bit before we get back into your you know seminary and and the work you did there and then what you're doing now. But I I have to confess that I have no I don't not only do I not have military service. There's like in my whole extended family, I can think of two people who were in the military. Two like two cousins whom I don't really know that well. I track back to even my my parents weren't, my grandparents weren't. I don't think any of my great-grandparents were in the military. So it's just, that's just one of those things that has n- not been a part of my experience in my history. So like, I, I never even really considered it going into the military. What, what, why did you go, what drew you into the military? Was that something that was part of your family or uh, your own personal draw or how'd you end up there? It was a little part of my family. My dad had been in the army uh, during the 1950s. And so um, he always talked about the military and how it is. um, It's a good choice, uh, at least initially, uh, if you don't want to go to school um, which I, which I didn't, but, uh, where'd you grow up? Yeah. Oh, so I grew up in the booming metropolis of Pocahontas, Arkansas, which is, which is a town of about 6,000 people. Uh 
not much, not much changes here. Um, okay. And I'm, and I'm back in this area. I, I live about 20 miles outside of the town on, on my farm, but um, I, I knew from about the age of 12 that I wanted to join the military. And I, I would love to say that it was patriotism or nationalism or, you know, any, any of those types of things, but I just wanted to get the heck out of Pocahontas. That's why really? I joined. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And why the Marine Corps? Um, it, it seemed the hardest, you know, uh, the only thing I knew was, was from movies. And so it seemed like it would be the most challenging and that was what I was interested in. Hmm. And was it, I imagine it was extremely challenging. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Although I, I did do some training with the army. I did ranger school and jump school and some other some other schools with the army actually okay. ranger school was was by far the most challenging way more challenging than boot camp i would even argue more challenging than than all three of my combat tours i mean it was really tell me about yeah, that i mean like, I what, lost, what, what goes I mean, what goes on there at ranger school well they basically starve you and they don't give you any sleep i mean i lost 45 pounds i was 120 pounds come on dude I graduated I'm five eight, 120 pounds. Yeah, it was it was crazy. They yeah, you're essentially a zombie for the majority of that of that school. Now it's changed some, but but when I was when I went through in the early nineties, it was like one meal a day. You know, there was really no mandated sleep they had to give you. It was it was essentially torture. It was wow. it was really torture. Yeah. And how'd you make it? Yeah, guys but, must have been ba- people must have been bailing out. Or not making sure. it. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you about yeah, that. What should. What do you, do you think? Well, yeah. Like what What mental toughness does it take, or like how did you have the mental toughness to survive that? Part of it was, I'd say, a large part of it was being a Marine, like being representative of the Marine Corps in this, Uh-oh. you know, sis, sister service school. So it's like I can't, I can't quit. I can't you know, disgrace the Marine Corps by, by quitting. (laughs) That was a large part of it actually. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and then you, you've already mentioned this, but I remember, you know, talking to you about this when we were on our canoe trip a lot about your, your combat tours. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So I did seven deployments total during my, 21 years and i mean it's sorry to interrupt if you're 21 years in do you are you like re-upping for another few years every so often like how does that work yes uh when you're enlisted yes uh so my okay. first about half about 11 years was enlisted so i was re-upping about every i think four years roughly and then and then as an officer it's kind of like eh, you're just you're just in as long as you want to be until you either get passed over for promotion or you just resign your commission, which is what I did. Okay. Yeah. So seven different deployments and three of those were combat deployments, uh, all to the middle East and, um, yeah, yeah. Difficult, obviously difficult circumstances, difficult deployments. Uh, yeah, but thankfully not, a lot of um, after effects, not a lot of you know, like post traumatic stress residue from for me. I 
I know a lot of guys that I served with do struggle with that. I've, hmm. I'm very grateful that I don't have a lot of that going on. What do you think? What do you attribute that to? Is that luck or genes or something else? What do you think? <laughs> um, from from what I've studied about post traumatic stress, um, I, I I've had a couple of the or I'm at a couple of the factors that made me lower risk. So uh, having having an education by the time that I experienced some of my more traumatic later combat tours in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then just, I'd, I'd been in the Marine Corps, you know, 12, 15 years by that time. So had experienced lots of training and, uh, was, um, to some degree just, um, had been strengthened by all of that. I was older, you know, so, um, I was in my thirties by that time. So, mm-hmm. so from, from study, studies show that, um, all, all of those factors, make a person a little more resilient to the effects of post-traumatic stress. Are you, and, and I mean, we're going to get back to that because I know the, the, the guys you work with now, some of them are suffering from that, but do you, um, are you one of these guys, you do you not like to talk about the act, the combat you saw over there, or is it something you openly talk about or, how is uh, how's that I, I, for you? Sure, I don't mind talking about it. I'll openly talk about it. I I do want to. Um, I, I guess my experience there's this kind of code that um, part of my role as a warrior is to protect, you know, the country, protect uh, its citizens, and that to me includes protecting them from the effects of war hmm. and. Uh, and the the um, experience of war, you know, through my eyes. Now, again, if they ask me, I, I'm I'm going to talk about it. I don't I don't mind talking about it. It doesn't trigger anything for me. But I'm I'm definitely going to temper some of the details because of that. Interesting. But if you were with other Marines, would you be more uh, forthcoming about the details since you figured they are? you know, they saw similar kind of things. Is that, I mean, is there like a shared, shared language? Is it that kind of thing or shared memory? That yeah. Kind of thing? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. As, as a matter of fact, I uh, just went to a reunion for um, my last combat tour was in uh, Fallujah in 2004, 2005 when we invaded okay. the city. And so we had a reunion. And so being around those guys, you know, you, you can, kind of let, not only let your guard down, but you can talk more freely because of that shared experience. Yeah. But even if I, even if I ran into service members that weren't in that battle, uh, I, yeah, I could definitely talk about some things with them that I, that I probably wouldn't normally. Yeah. In case we have, um, military, it, it's funny, you know, I like, I even watch, I watch, I, I've, I read a lot of, um, war memoirs um and watch a lot of war movies and stuff like that and i i've often wondered about that i, I have this very vivid experience I, from my freshman year in college um i took a seminar called the iliad and memories of war and we read i think 10 different war memoirs starting with the iliad by homer and working our way you know up through 
the present day. I think the last one we read was Dispatches, which is a very famous Vietnam memoir. Um, you know, we read Red Badge of Courage. We read um, Xenophon's Anabasis from ancient, uh, ancient, uh, an ancient Greek book. And I remember sitting in the, uh, in the professor's office with another student in office hours toward the end of the seminar and saying like, he was asking us something about, you know, if, if we thought what we thought about the class and what we thought about the writings and I kind of fumbled through some this and that. And, you know, we're at this like bougie elite Ivy league school where we're completely insulated from any kind of, um, combat or conflict or anything like that. And the other student said something to the effect of, I think I'll probably never, I mean, pardon me for the, you know, misogyny of his statement, but, or, or the male centric centrism of his statement. But he said, I think I'll never know what it's like to actually be a man because I will never serve in combat. And the professor almost came out of his seat and said, yes, that's it. Like, that's the point of this. And I've, <laughs> I've struggled with that as somebody who not only didn't serve, but really didn't even have the, the opportunity to, or it never really occurred to me. And I don't know. I mean, I don't, really know if I have a question other than asking you if, if I can, if you can like tell me I'm going to be okay even though I never saw com combat or something like that. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I think, I think it'll be okay. Uh, I mean, what, what do you think it does to somebody to see what you saw? Other than obviously provoking some people you know, some real trauma experiences and, and, and a hard time getting over that. But are there, are yeah. there other parts of it? Be benefits? Is it a band of brothers? Is it, you know, does it, did it make you a better human being or a better Christian? Uh, ooh, wow. Those are, or, those or are is it, or is it all just a waste? you know, is it all just a waste? And, and, and the only reason you had to go fight was because of, you know, our, sinful human natures or something right um it definitely made me a better human being in the sense of i think it broadened my perspective of service and sacrifice for others like when i went to iraq to liberate the country i i personally was going to liberate the people and so that was my Hmm. A lot, lots of my interactions had to do with with that very thing is is how how can we give these people a chance in their country, not necessarily to have what we as Americans have, but to give them a choice for what they want, whether that's, mm -hmm. you know, capitalism or, you know, something else. So. Um, so I, I felt like I already had this, I was already drawn to service and sacrifice for others. The military just kind of, it channeled that and allowed me to do it in, in specific ways and in places I, I normally wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And so it broadened my perspective of, of, um, maybe serving people that, that are very different than me, that believe very different than me, that, um, 
that in some ways are not very different than me. They, they want good things for their family and, you know, they want their kids to grow up better than them. Like, like all, all of those things that we as Americans take very seriously. I, I saw that in, in other peoples throughout the world. And, and so it, it, th- that gave me hope actually, you know, that we're all, we are all very similar in some ways yeah. and we are all in this together, so to speak. But does it, at, at the same time it gives you hope, does it also cause you any distress that the way we seem to have to bring this about is through armed conflict? Uh, I mean, do you think that? used to. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, it, did, the first, it, did, but... <laughs> it didn't used to. <laughs> Obviously, you know, spending that, that long in the military, you know, it, I didn't have a problem with it until, until towards the end, I had this moment when it was in Fallujah and, um, we're on top of this building and, and I'm like, I'm, I'm controlling, uh, like indirect fires and aircraft and stuff. And so my team, we're like, we're clicking and we're, you know, we're doing what we got to do. And we have this building about 200 meters away and we drop a bomb from, you know, from a, from an aircraft. 10,000 feet up. We dropped this 500,000 bomb on this building. And it was, it was nighttime and, and the building goes up in this huge ball of flame. And, and I, and my Marines are like, you know, jumping up and down and celebrating. And, and it was literally in that moment, I felt this like despair. I'm like, how, mm. how did we get here where we are celebrating the demise of other human beings like this, I, I not, this is, this is very difficult for me. This is very unexpected that this would be my reaction. So that was, that was at my 15 year mark in the, in the Marines. And, mm. and I would say that that started my journey of, of exiting out of the military, but it also started my journey back to being in a relationship with a God that for the most part, I did not trust. Hmm. Tell me about that. So when you were in those first 15 years in the Marines, had you grown up in a, in a faithful home? Yes. So I grew up, uh, Southern Baptist, you know, in Arkansas and my Uh family had, had been in ministry together. Actually, we were in, I had three older sisters and my, my parents at that time were still married. And, uh, and we were in volunteer, volunteer ministry where we would go around on Saturday and we would invite people to church. And then on Sunday we would drive, my dad would drive this school bus around and we would, uh, hmm. you know, pa- paint it in the colors of our church, you know, and yeah, uh, of course <laughs> we would, we would, we would, we would pick these people up. And so, uh, so from an early age, uh, church or, or being a Christian was, was very centered around service and, okay. Um, and giving to others both time and resources. And so, um, so, so that was, you know, very formative as you can, as you can imagine. And, uh, and then my dad, when I was 10, decided to run off with another woman that he had been having an affair with, not from the church, but, uh, but, but basically started a new life and a new family with, with someone else. And, my family that we had been poor up until that point, but, but we became really poor after that. And Hmm. the church where we had been in ministry 
did not offer any help, both, you know, spiritually. I mean, they, they wouldn't even pray with my mom. Uh, they, they really? basically, they did this thing called sh- they, shunning. You probably heard of oh, geez. shunning where, yeah, they, tr- they basically treat you like shit until you stop going. So, <laughs> so, uh, so that's oh. what we did. We, we stopped going. And, and so, you know, my little 10 year old mind was devastated by that. This yeah. place that had been refuge and, you know, a, a sense of purpose now was like, there was nothing. So. So it makes sense that right around that time, you know, I decided to to join the military and get that sense of purpose and serving. Mm-hmm. Um, even even though I didn't do it till years later, but I decided right around that time. Yeah. And and so, you're, so that led you're, to yeah, years and uh, that led to years and years of anger at God. Uh, again, just lumping into you know. Christians, Christianity, God, all of that is, you know, I was wounded by all of that. Um, and it took, uh, well, you know, that being on that rooftop in Fallujah, I, I would say that it was right after that that I recognized, okay, what I had been pursuing was was ultimately not fulfilling. I thought it would hmm. be, and, and ultimately it is it is empty. And it is in some ways ugly. And so that led me to, to want to be open to, uh, to God again. Yeah. I mean, do you think then like, I I'm going to journey back to God or did, or did that take some time? I mean, it's to go from that, you know, that building exploding and having that kind of existential moment of like, these guys around me are cheering. I feel no joy in this. And then seven years later, you're, or six years later, you retire from the military and go to seminary. What, like, what, what was that journey like in those years? Well, uh, back up. So, so at that time on the, on the rooftop, like literally the next day, I'm, I, I did what I, you know, a good Southern Baptist would do is I'm going to pray Huh. And I'm going to read the Bible and I'm going to, I'm going to wait for wow. God to, to speak to me somehow. And, uh, and so that's what I did. So I read all of the gospels while I'm sitting in Fallujah, you know, in, in the midst of this battle. Did you have to borrow it? Did you have to borrow a Bible from somebody? Or the, <laughs> I suppose the Gide- the Gideons pass them out to all the Marines or. Uh, I don't, that's a good question. I don't know where I got the Bible. I think it was probably just a, a new Testament as well. Mm-hmm. You know, those are, yeah, we usually started the fires, you know, at night because we had so many. So I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We did not burn Bibles. We did not. I'm just kidding. So, but there were but, quite um, a few Bibles lying around, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. And we were relatively stationary. I mean, we were moving through the city of Fallujah, but but, you know, we had, uh, you know, a, a forward operating base at that time. So you know, that we went back to. So so we had places to keep things. And so finding a Bible was not hard. And, uh, yeah, so that's what I did. I found the Bible and read through the Gospels and nothing. I don't even remember anything that I read. There was no kind of message from God. So I just kind of put it on the back burner at that point. And, um, yeah, and didn't think about it a whole lot 
until a few years later and deciding what I'm going to do after I retire. And so I thought, well, why don't I, you know, as a good Marine, I should probably get some more training, right? <laughs> yeah. So why don't I try, why don't I try, you know, Bible training? What's, what's seminary? Huh. Well, I don't know. Let's, let's, let's take a look at that. So that's, that's, so literally I stopped work on a Thursday and that following Monday, Monday is when I started seminary. Wow. That must have been quite the uh, quite the whiplash situation because those are <laughs> two was. pretty different worlds. Combat in the Marine Corps to uh, a very conservative uh, biblical seminary. Yeah, it surely was. Uh, although you know it was it was Talbot, so you know Talbot is pretty. Uh, Talbot School of Theology is part of Biola, pretty regimented, you know, pretty, mm-hmm. uh, pretty lockstep in some ways. And so I think that um, that transition, it made that transition easier because of that. Okay. Um, looking back on your military service, how does that sit with you now? I mean, you you obviously ha- have had some time to reflect on it, think back on it. Maybe you're now you're looking at it through this lens of, you know, Christian ministry. Um, what do you think about our country's, I don't know, it's uh, ongoing conflicts? Mm-hmm. Do they, it, it, does it work? Like, it d- did... Did you achieve what you set out to achieve, or do you look back? It seems like there's like there's the one the one way to look at that military service is, is it was effective, and that's what we've got to do. That's America's role in the world. And there's another more cynical perspective. It's like I was a kid out of high school who didn't go to college, and you know right away, and then was kind of swept into this thing and was used by very wealthy, powerful people and corporations to fight wars we didn't really need to fight. Or, and, and surely there's a whole spectrum in between those two poles. Sure, sure. I, I don't feel that, the, the last part you said about, I don't feel taken advantage of simply because I was a volunteer and I could have left, you know, at, at the end of my obligated service, I, I could have left. And, and so... Yeah. I definitely don't feel that. Um, I think for sure I look back on it and I, I think that if uh, if I would have been more mature at the time, I may have chosen a different way to serve or or maybe I, I would have served in the military and then, you know, maybe got out and and, and served in, in other ways. But um, I, I definitely don't regret it. And... I, I think that there is, there's a lot of similarities between um, going through the hardship of training and going through the hardship of combat. Many, many lessons that I learned that are directly applicable to what I'm doing now, helping people in recovery mm-hmm. and working through their addiction issues as I continue to work through my own addiction issues. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and just, uh, just recognizing that that, that it, it takes resolve to, uh, to continue to battle addiction. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. In many ways, 
you know, obviously it took resolve to, to do what I had to do in the military. So, yeah. Yeah. When did you come to, when, when did you first realize that you had issues with addiction? Um, it was, it was towards the time that I was getting out of the, the Marines. I, obviously, as you can imagine, the, the Marines not only allow drinking, but they <laughs> encourage it. You know, um, you, you get promoted faster, the, the more you can drink. And I'm just kidding. That's not true. But, um, <laughs> but how do they, I mean, it but, would uh, seem, no, I mean, that does surprise me actually, because it would seem like, um, what they want is you to be in like superior mental and physical shape and i mean drinking would seem to run counter to that but is it tell explain that to me oh but think about it if i can do both if i can drink all night oh. and then i can get up and do my job oh i'm even more of a badass right interesting okay okay yeah yeah so so it was towards the end of my time in the marines and i i never let my drinking and my career clash. Like I kept the, I was able to keep those two very separate. And, uh, and towards, towards the end, like my last deployment was already over and I was just kind of waiting, you know, until my time to, to get out. And I, but I was still a commander and, um, and I realized that I was starting to drink more and more. And I was, I was actually, I actually one, one morning, I was doing a hike with my Marines and I was still a little drunk hmm. and, and it was during that hike that I sobered up <laughs> and I started to feel terrible. Uh -oh. And, um, and so that's what, you know, when it, when it started interfering with my career, that was a, you know, a light went on. Okay, Billy, this is, this is a problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, and so that led to, you know, me getting out, but then while I was in seminary, getting, you know, going into therapy and, and starting to become aware of the 12 steps and started to become involved in 12 step communities or what I call recovery communities. Mm -hmm. Okay. Before we leave military service behind, I'm guessing that there's might be listeners who are like, Tony, why didn't you ask him? what unit he was in, because I hear those things and they mean <laughs> mm -hmm. nothing to me, but um, I, I wish they did, but I, I can't, but can you tell, what was that? What, what unit were you in or how, how, how would you define, I don't even know the right terminology for it. Sure. I, I served mainly in first Marines, which is uh, West coast, Camp Pendleton. So my last couple of tours, I was with uh, 3-1, so 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines. And then my last deployment was with 1st Battalion, 1st Marines. And so I was, a, I was actually a company commander with, with both of those battalions. Okay, company commander. And, so, and what, was, yeah. your, what yep. was the highest rank you achieved? Captain. Okay. And when you, one last thing, when you try to leave, does anybody try to convince you to stay? Are they like, Billy, <laughs> sure. man, you're awesome, dude. You don't leave. You know, we're, you're going to become a colonel or something. I don't know what's after captain, but. Um, yeah, there were some, some people, uh, some commanders, you know, the, the biggest compliment was, 
was getting commanders to, uh, you know, guys that I'd served with that, that I served under that, you know, tried to convince me to stay in. And, um, and that was, um, you know, that, that for sure made me feel good, but I knew the Marine Corps is a machine that the day after you're gone, they don't even remember you. I mean, they don't even, oh. they don't even skip a beat because they, they can't, that, that's right. the nature right. of it. So, yeah. So, um, yeah. So it was like, you know, my, my unit that I was retiring from, they were, you know, looking to go to Afghanistan on their next deployment. And the battalion commander wanted me to stay for that. And it's like, nah, no, thank you. You guys have mm. fun though. <laughs> uh, fun. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's a different definition of fun. <laughs> um, I remember a conversation you and I had that really left a profound impact on me. And I'd like to continue that conversation with you now. And it's about guns. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about firearms. Um, and, you know, I'm a hunter and we've talked about that. And I, I want to talk to you some about the hunting you do on your farm and stuff and, and with your guests mm-hmm. even. But um, I was interested to talk to you when we were canoeing together because you had, I thought a really, you had very strong opinions about guns and, and it impressed me how, um, how you talked about a gun as a tool, as I recall, and one that you didn't shy away from talking about. And, and I'll tell you what, as a progressive theologian and hunter and firearms owner, I am, I am always skittish in talking about firearms, especially with people who are not, uh, you know, hunters or firearms owners. Sure. It it just seems so, so touchy in our, in our context today and in our society. And, you know, for good reasons. Now, three years have passed since you and I had that conversation and there's been, you know, even more gun violence in the United States Mm -hmm. since you and I were together. Where do you, where do you sit right now with firearms as somebody who is, has received so much training and used so many firearms and, and, you know, use them in combat situations even. Sure. Sure. I really enjoy guns. I, I like to shoot recreationally. I have some steel targets set up that I like to shoot, you know, with pistol and rifle. Uh, mm-hmm. I do like to hunt, of course. Um, and so th- they're very enjoyable for me and, and I get some fulfillment from them. But do you feel weird gladly... saying that? Do you, let, do you, do you feel weird no. saying I get enjoyment from shooting guns? No, not at all. Not at all. Um, but I would gladly, um, give up some of them. I would be open to giving up all of them. If, if we had a plan, if we could come up with a plan that would curtail or stop the violence in this country, I, I surely would. I, I, I am open to that, and I'm open to people coming up with with solutions. I don't I don't think the solution. I don't think it's fair to me or the American people to say you have to give up your all of your guns, you know, right away. I don't I don't think that's fair. Not only based on our constitution but it just based on the environment 
and just human nature of, of, of having the freedom to own these things and getting fulfillment from them. Mm-hmm. But, but I think we have to be honest that there is a problem with gun violence and, and we have to be open to the possibility that, Hey, this thing that we get fulfillment from, if, if it's also causing the death of people that we know and don't know, Mm-hmm. We need to take a look at that. Not not just as Christians, but just as as people, like just as logical people. Uh, you know, you have to. In my opinion, it's it's uh, unavoidable. Mm-hmm. And so that's 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 where I sit now. You know, is is that I'm I'm open. I'm open to to a plan that will slow or stop the violence in this mm-hmm. country that is that is at the hands of people with guns. I mean, one thing that you said that Im- impressed me a lot and has stuck with me, and I've I've often thought about it honestly since since we had this conversation, is you know you were talking at the time you had not yet started Sanctuary Farm. Um, you would maybe just moved there, and you were you know you were in, you were in April. We're in the open beginning stages of it. You had not yet hosted a guest, and you talked sure. about um. I think you talked about even, you know, if you were to have, um, you know, let's say somebody who gets out of prison and is coming to Sanctuary Farm as kind of their part of their halfway house and recovery, um, that you would even take them out shooting, even, even somebody who maybe is forbidden from ever owning a firearm because they're a convicted felon. Nevertheless, mm-hmm. it, this, again, this is how I remember you telling it to me. Like, there's, they still should have a healthy respect for firearms, know how to use them, because even though they're forbidden from, you know, ever owning a firearm, most likely a firearm is going to come across. They're, you know, they're going to have experience with firearms in the future. Um, right, and right. that that surprised me too because I mean th- there is at first blush maybe a bit of a somebody if somebody comes to a, rolls down your gra- I'm assuming you got a gravel driveway at the sanctuary farm. Uh-huh. Okay, somebody comes rolling down, you can just hear the wheels kind of rolling down the gravel driveway, and it you see the sign it says sanctuary farm. And then you hear, bam, 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 bam. And there's Billy out <laughs> shooting, shooting targets. <laughs> like that is, it just seems a bit of an oxymoron that people would come to Sanctuary Farm and they would lo- learn how to shoot firearms. But I love it. I mean, I'm I'm not criticizing you. I love I love the I love the the paradoxes that that are mm-hmm. a part of what you're doing. Um. So, w- yeah, where are you at now with that? Well, first of all, I mean, I, I've been mentioning Sanctuary Farm. You should tell us. I, I know about it, but and I get your newsletter, and I recommend a lot of other people should go to your sanctuaryfarm.org and sign up for your email newsletter too. But tell us what you do there, how you came upon that farm, and and how you're using it. So um, when I was working as a chaplain in Los Angeles, um, part of the part of what I saw was I saw men and women trying to get out of addiction, but they were they were in the same place where they, you know, they they were living in the addiction. They were they they weren't mm-hmm. removing themselves or weren't able to remove themselves from uh, that location. And so mm-hmm. 
so initially my thought was, Hey, if I, if I get a farm, you know, offsite, um, then maybe, maybe I could, I could contribute to, you know, getting, getting people out of their, uh, addiction, um, through just taking them offsite. And that, and that led to, uh, pursuing buying a farm that had been in my family. It was actually my mom's farm and it wasn't being used. And so my wife and I came and visited it and checked it out. And of course I'd been there before, but I was just kind of showing her around and, and, um, you know, lots of, lots of prayer. And, and so we, we finally decided to, to do that, to actually buy the farm and then move out to Arkansas <laughs> and uh and start the sanctuary farm again the idea was to provide um a place of refuge for uh for anyone uh experiencing the effects of addiction or trauma uh, and then that led us to to partnering with a local jail like the county jail and inviting um inmates uh from the jail uh to uh to stay on the farm and, and work on their addiction issues uh, while they're guests here. So that's, that's essentially what we do. And um, we also rescue alpacas, okay. which, which are, it seems kind of random. My wife has always liked alpacas. And, and so, uh, and so we have 10 that we have rescued every, wow. every everything from, you know, going to uh, uh like a, um, a sale barn. <laughs> like there's like a single alpaca and like, nobody knows what it is. And wow. we'll, you know, we'll, we'll buy it and, and bring it back. What's an alpaca uh, girl for these days? Um, at the sale barn, $500 or less. Not, not very much. Okay. Okay. Cause again, most people don't, most people don't really use Want them. They don't find them useful. <laughs> We find them useful. Most people so? don't find them useful. Well, uh, the wool is yep. uh, it's it's actually better quality than than sheep's wool, and mm. so my my wife makes yarn out of the out of the wool, and then makes things out of the yarn like hats and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we'll send you a hat. And uh, I'd love it, <laughs> dude. I would love a hat. That would be awesome. <laughs> But but we also use them uh, for uh, in, in the program. Alpacas mm-hmm. are very strange in that they don't trust very easy, mm-hmm. and um, you can't just go up to an alpaca and start petting it. They don't like to be petted. Um, you have to you have to work on building trust with them. And so one of the things that I teach uh, our our guests is is that trust should be earned from both ways. Like we shouldn't. We shouldn't just extend trust to people um, on the spot. They need they need to earn it from us, but we also need to earn trust of, of other people. And so that's that's yeah. one of the lessons that that I can teach them through alpacas. Yeah. Um. Tell me about the guys who come from the jail. What's what's their experience like when they end up at your farm? <laughs> most of them are very confused by <laughs> by by uh a former marine who i typically have long hair and a beard mm-hmm. you know and uh and i i i curse a little sometimes mm-hmm. you know and and so so they're often it takes them a while to figure out 
what what is going on like what 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 is what is this place sanctuary farm and how are they able to um how are they able to 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 maybe get their life going in a in a different direction with this hippie looking dude who <laughs> you know who who knows the bible and can teach the bible but also yeah i mean are they told back at the jail curses. that they're going out to see a pastor or something and they they, they probably have a very different I, image in their mind of what a pastor is i usually go and interview them and and okay. so when they're in the when they're in the jail you know they're still in the jumpsuit and i go the striped jumpsuit you know i i go and talk to them and and just tell them a little bit about the program of course they're they're wanting to get out of there yeah um who who wouldn't you know but but i i definitely talk to them about you know the the length of the program which is initially six months for them and that can be extended, but just the the internal work that we will be doing that will not be comfortable, will not yeah. be comfortable. And so, so most guys that we've had, they typically are very comfortable working with their hands. Uh, most of them know more about farming or or building stuff. They they know more than I do, hmm. uh, and and that's fine. I you know I can learn from them. I have learned tons from them. But when it comes to, you know, going deeper and and trying to figure out why they use, like what led to this addiction in the first place and why do they keep going back to it, even though they know it's damaging them and their relationships, uh, that that is uh, typically very difficult for them, as it, as it was for me when I first started this walk in recovery. Hmm. Um so, so I, I think my experience of of leading in adverse conditions and and leading uh, leading people that are experiencing the effects of um, what we call human factors, which is, uh, you know, I, I I don't want to talk about my stuff. I don't I don't want to talk about my childhood. I don't want to talk about being sexually molested when I was eight. I don't want to talk about those things. Mm-hmm. But I try to show them that well, I do show them that we need to. We don't want to. We need to in order to figure mm-hmm. out what's really going on inside of us. Hmm. Wow, that's intense, man. I mean, it's. I think just what you're doing is. I have so much respect for it, and I think it's so gutsy and so like. It's it's such a i don't know i'm humbled by it that by your ministry because i think it it's really the kind of ministry that if more of us who are called into ministry did it you know the world we we would actually move the needle on making the world a better place so i'm a huge sure. fan what what can, what can people what yeah i mean for sure and i desperately want to get down there and and hunt with you what are, what would we hunt if i came down there I think you've mentioned deer and uh, well, turkeys to me before. Yeah, sure. Deer season is coming up. I'm doing a lot of deer season prep right now, so getting food food plots ready, nice. and uh, you know, putting out the corn. Got this, you know, going around and getting the stands all, making sure they're tied up against the trees, and um, yeah, yeah, getting ready for that. Deer guests, that's, that's pretty uh, exciting. Deer guests, uh, deer hunt with you. They do, yeah. They. They uh, they got four deer. We had three guests last year, and they they got a total of four deer. 
Wow. So that was that was really good. We had we had lots of <laughs> lots of meat last year. I'm guessing you do you guys do all the butchering and everything yourself there on site at the farm. We we don't do it all. We uh, did do some, uh, but we mm-hmm. have a a local place that, that we take it to. We like to we like to support them and keep them going. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then you got some turkeys roaming around there too. We do have. I have not been turkey hunting lately, but uh, but we do have some turkeys for sure. So that that might be something we could set up as well. <laughs> That's awesome, man. And how big? I'm guessing the deer in Arkansas grow a little bit bigger than the deer in Minnesota. I mean, for one thing, because we have CWD up here, we're not allowed to put out corn or do mm. any do any right. kind of bait. I mean, we can, we can plant food plots, but that's about the extent of it. You can't put on any mineral licks or pour a bag of corn, you know, 20 feet away from your deer stand or anything like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, what kind yeah, of the deer, the deer, are pretty well, big bucks? they're pretty well fed. Here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We have one, we call, we call him big nasty and he's, he's roaming around here. He's been around a couple of years. I'd say he's he's definitely four or five years old, uh, ten pointer. Dang. Not for sure on the weight, yeah. But he's he's pretty big. All right, and then what's your uh, rifle of choice for deer hunting? Oh, I have a I have a Tika stainless two seventy with a uh, Bushnell Elite on top, so it's a super light setup. When when I shoot that thing, it it makes me think the world is, is ending because it kicks so much <laughs> and it's so loud, but Oh man, it shoots so well. It's got a great trigger on it. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a good, good rival. I like the D70 awesome. cartridge a lot. Okay. Okay. I'm a 30 out six guy fast. myself. Yeah. So, Oh really? Okay. Yeah. 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 I mean, I like it. We're, we're hunt- Are you hunting in the woods or out over a cornfield or what? Uh, both. Both I have stands, uh, both in the woods, and then um, we have. Uh, I have a, my biggest food plot is right next to a pond that's in a field, so I have a I have a blind uh, for that one. So that would be rifle only. Yeah. And you do some bow hunting too. I do. Yeah. Bow, a uh, regular bow, and then uh, my goal is to is I have a recurve that mm-hmm. uh that i've been training with and so my my goal is to take a deer with with an actual traditional bow but haven't done that yet how how what's your range you think on that your your lethal range uh probably 30 yards would be max okay yeah, but i would i would feel way more comfortable 15 to 20 yeah yeah dang man that sounds pretty good. You got to like uh, join social media so we can see some of these deer you're shooting. <laughs> uh, okay. You're well, not, uh, you're not really my, a social media wife, guy, are you? Is it? Will she put them uh, on? Will April put them on your Facebook page for the sanctuary? Yeah, farm? yeah. She'll. I'll, I'll have her do that. Yeah, we'll 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 put them on there. Yeah, I just um, I just don't want to get caught up in social media. Um, I hear you. Yeah. It's 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 actually kind of tied to my addiction issues. I I think it might trigger that a little bit and be a little consuming, so I just uh I just stay away. Gotcha. No, that's fair. Yeah. Hey, last thing. Um when you were talking about that building blowing up 
in Fluge and, and, and the guys cheering, you know, it, it, the thing I immediately thought of was how uncomfortable I am when an animal is shot when I'm hunting and, or, or even like watching a hunting show on TV and there's all sorts of cheering and high fiving. Um, mm-hmm. I, I find, I, and I, I guess, I, I don't know, have you thought about that? I mean, have you thought about your approach to, you know, obviously mixed kind of moral, you must have some moral feelings about being in combat and killing human beings. Um, wh- where's that crossover for you of, you know, what's, what it's like to kill a deer, mm-hmm. another another living creature? Sure. It is, it's definitely exhilarating. And, and I'm, I'm with you in that, um, like I avoid the whole like trophy shot, you know, the picture with the Mm -hmm. holding the deer's head and the rifle or, you know, whatever you kill it with laying over. I I just, I I don't do that. I I just personally like that crosses the line for me in, in like celebrating and, and making it a trophy when I don't, I don't see it as mm-hmm. a trophy. I see it as, you know, a means of, of sustenance. So, um, yeah, yeah. So it is, it, it does bring up interestingly, some of the same feelings of exhilaration and, um, that, that I experienced in combat whenever I'm yeah. sitting there and I'm, I'm looking at this deer and I'm, you know, aimed in and I'm, I'm considering pulling the trigger that I, that I do experience some of that, some of the same like rush. It's a, it's a rush yeah. of feelings. It's almost, yeah. it's almost hard to describe because there's so many feelings at once, you know? Um, yeah. So I, I just try to keep it respectful for sure. And, oh, I, and I wanted to tell you this story, Tony, cause yeah. I thought it was really, really poignant about, about this and about redemption. So, so last year, one of the guys, when he, when he killed uh, a deer, he, he did not have a hunting license. And I, I just made the assumption that, you know, these guys have been hunting for a while. So they just, that was just something they did. So he didn't get a hunting license. And so when he told me that, I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Not only (laughs) is that illegal, but you know, you're now you're involving me and my farm, you know, or, you know, and all of that. So so I was, I was pretty upset. And, and, and so, uh, and, and then that led to, uh, other conversations with the other guests and the, come to find out they had been fishing without a fishing license. And I'm just hmm. like, Oh my gosh, this, this is a disaster. So, so I actually, uh, I said, look guys, like we, we need to make this right. And so I called the game warden and I told him what was going on. And I, and I said, look, this happened, but I, I asked for, for grace in, in this, uh, situation. But, uh, but I also want you to come talk to the guys. And so he did. Mm-hmm. And, and I, each of the guys admitted what they had done wrong. And, and he thanked them for, for doing that from not hiding from, from the fact that they had, you know, had hunted or fished illegally and then, and then forgave them. And, uh, and it was really, really awesome because, not only were they having to like this was part of their recovery right having to face something they had done wrong but he rep- he was representative of law enforcement and all three of those guys were you know they were facing felony charges and so wow. so having this 
having this face-to-face conversation with the authority and and it turning out the way that it did, uh, I thought it was very redemptive. It, I mean, they they talked about it for a couple of weeks after that, and they were just smiling. That's and powerful. Laughing, and it was yeah. Yeah, it was it was really cool. That's amazing, man. Yeah, I'm sure those are guys who have not really had many positive encounters with law enforcement. Sure. So exactly. that's awesome. Well, how can people uh, support you? What what can people do to help you out? Support Sanctuary Farm. Sure. Go to our website, sanctuaryfarm.org. You can sign up for the newsletter. You can uh, email me if you know anybody that might benefit from coming to our farm either for recovery purposes or for respite if they just want to come visit we actually just got a new uh, cottage that we're um uh, developing the inside you know just it's kind of like a tiny home cottage and and that'll be for you know for temporary guests um so they, they can reach us there um they can email me directly through the website you can also support us either uh, through donations through the website or we're actually signed up with Amazon, you know, the smile.amazon.com. Oh, there you uh, go. Yeah. yeah, that's a great, mm-hmm. great way to do it. Okay. Sure, sure. And you can buy some of April's stuff, I think, on, if you go to the local farmer's market, huh? Uh, yeah, and she has them on <laughs> eBay too. She has some stuff okay. on eBay, but, uh, but yeah, hats and dryer balls are actually very popular. We make dryer okay. balls out of alpaca fur and uh yeah that they do really well awesome well billy i i it's great talking to you i miss you know seeing you i wish i could see you more often but we're we're gonna have to make it happen so we can hunt together or go on another canoe trip or do something like that that sounds good yeah it'd be good to see you again yeah all right well thanks thanks a million for coming on take care you bet, Tony. Thanks, thanks for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. Wow, Brandon, that was a great interview. Thanks. You did such a nice job recording and, and engineering and producing it. Well, thanks, Tony. I thought it was a great episode as well, and you did such a great job of hosting it. Aw, oh, thank you. What if some people out there listening thought the same thing as us and just wanted to throw their sponsorship towards the show? How would they be able to do that, Tony? Oh, we would love more sponsors at the Reverend Hunter podcast. If people want to do that, they can get a hold of Karen Cleary at the Talk North Podcast Network. And her email is kcleary, that's K-C-L-E-A-R-Y at talknorth.com. And she will tell you everything you need to know about sponsoring the Reverend Hunter podcast. We would love to have you as a partner on this show. Thanks a lot. Great question, Brandon. Uh, Thanks for throwing it out there for me like it was completely unplanned. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye.